this week on the Backtable Podcast. And when you become really competent at doing it, and then you're able to do it kind of by, almost by feel, then you're next level. We're at the point where we're doing it without adequate guidance, and we're trying to do it by karma, vibes, and good feeling. <laughs> what we need to do is take that skill and that capability and ratchet that up as much as mm -hmm. we can. We need to use not only technology, but we need to use that ability in conjunction with that technology to advance to the next level. And that's, that's kind of what we're looking for now. There's nothing more impressive than somebody that's operating that has really well-developed visual spatial skills that is able to have a minimally, ultra minimally invasive or percutaneous way of doing big things on the inside, little poke holes on the outside. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK Podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during Cine and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad Radiation Protection Shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the show. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. Welcome back to our final part in the series on osteoporosis and treatment of vertebral compression factors with Dr. Beal. You know, when, when we talk about pushing things to the next level, this brings me to something else I wanted to talk about, uh, which is insufficiency fractures outside the vertebral body. And I know you've done yeah. uh, treatments of these at a lot of different places in the body. So can you just, uh, you know, I, to this day, you're the only person I've seen share a case of pelvic fracture cementoplasty outside of um, ablation and stabilization for METs, which is another procedure yep. that I've been really excited to see gaining popularity, but there's, there's kind of different considerations there uh, than a fractured osteoporotic pelvis. So can you just talk to us about that and how do you approach doing these cases, you know, pubic ramoplasty that may not necessarily have any kind of how-to guide other than maybe the one you've written? Yeah, no, right, exactly. One of the things that, uh, that all of these have in common is I wrote a, a paper previously that had, uh, 60 plus fragility fractures, uh, of the pelvis, you know, most of them are sacral there. Uh, so I also had some pubic rami, inferior and superior acetabulum insufficiency fractures, iliac wing. And, you know, all of these, the only thing the, the fractures had in common is that all of them I treated for free. <laughs> Because there's no, there's no way to right. bill and code. It's an unlisted, unlisted code for all of these. But one of the things that we've, we've seen is the ability to get somebody up and around is pretty profound with the, with the treatment of the pubic ramus, the acetabulum, you know, anything, tibia, calcaneus. I mean, there's fractures all over, including clavicle and ribs that we can do. Now that we have the capability of guiding screw placement. And the ability not only to use film material that is cement, acrylic based, but we have film material that's ceramic. 
hydroxyapatite calcium sulfate. We have struvite. We've got film material that is biologic. We can pack it with cortical cancellous chips. We've got strings of DBM. So we have lots of different things that we can use. And one of the things that, that I like to do recently is combine, you know, rebar and cement, a film material and a metal, usually a screw type of screw to fix fractures. And, and, you know, I've, I've done sacroplasties like this. I've done combination. A recent case I've done is an SI joint fusion, somebody that has an L2 to the sacrum fusion that has had a lot of iliac bone graft harvest sites. Now his bilateral SI pain has undergone a previous uh, SI joint fusion that, that is, was ended up in a pseudoarthrosis and now has, you know, very little left of the ilium, including some parts of the ilium adjacent to the joint. And yet she has bilateral SI pain. And so I put three, uh, screws in, um, 11 and a half by 50, 11 and a half by, uh, 60, 11 and a half by 50 screws in the, across the joint and then cemented those in. So the, the rebar and cement combination, and that's basically the only way we had to kind of recreate that bony anatomy that was, that was removed, that was additionally put at risk because of the, the pseudoarthrosis of the attempted bony SI fusion. So if, if you use these principles that we talk about, you know, the, the and to use the, the principles, I'm going to borrow from another, especially the AO principles, uh, of fusion and to accomplish the realignment, to accomplish the stabilization, to preserve the blood supply. They are principles of fracture fixation. We, you can get pretty good at fixing fractures outside of the normal locations. And, you know, this is how we initially established, um, in the vertebral body, we wanted to do something other than transpedicular to be able to put big things into the vertebral body. So that's where the original descriptions of the parapedicular and the inferior plate extra particular approaches came from and to do things as from a radiologic background under CT, we can do CT guidance and we, we can establish the approaches under CT guidance. We know it's safe because we can see the surrounding structures that are there, avoid them and avoid potential complications by seeing the structures that might be injured from the procedure we're doing. And then we take that because it takes too long to do under CT, at least in my hands, then I do it all under fluoro. And we understand, we adapt that to do it under fluoro. It's fast. You can understand the anatomy. You can recognize where everything is going. And then pretty soon you're able to combine hardware plus any type of film material in a, in a complex three-dimensional way, especially around something that's hard to treat like the pelvis. But if you have the anatomy of pelvic anatomy and you know what to look for, it becomes, becomes quite a bit easier. So I think you know, the, the ability we should expand and use our native understanding of the anatomy, our native ability to guide things with imaging modalities other than fluoroscopy. And we should be able to three, think in our visual spatial channel, our inner visual spatial uh, adeptness to be able to create something that we can do under fluoro that we invented under CT. And all of these are just different ways of looking at the body. And I think challenging ourselves to be able to do this in a way, you know, one of the things I've not really understood why we're not doing, I don't understand why we don't have the greater capability of doing things in a three-dimensional way, because we can isolate a person's anatomy to the pixel and voxel mm -hmm. uh, within the body. 
I don't understand why we don't have a better way to target and to look inside. And I would like to have a combination fluoro and CT, not the current way that we have it, but a better way to use it. I, I don't like the, some of the crude tools that we have. Having said that, I do some, uh, I do most of my work, which is very simple tools. I, I have fluoro and until recently, I, I just had CT without, without CT fluoro. So. I think you can do great work. I think there needs to be advancements to, uh, to be able to improve the work that we do in the suite, to be able to take a good look at it. Kung Beam CT has been great. The, some of the, uh, combination alarm, this CT floor thing has been okay. I think it needs to be improved quite a bit, but you know, the, these are something that, that will expand our capability to treat, to put exactly what we want to do in exactly the right spot with 100% certainty. And until we get there, we're not there. And we, we, that's, that's the direction that, that is our point B though. That's uh, that's just great. I really like what you said about in improving what we can actually do using the imaging capabilities. That's what we do as radiologists. And I think one of the things that sets us apart from other specialties, uh, there are some other specialties who will use CT. I mean, CT not live CT, but CT navigation has been used in neurosurgery for eons now. And so we are starting to see approaching what you're talking about with integrated NGO CT units. I think that's going to be uh, something that really drives us forward. But I, I really did want to bring up, and I'm, I'm glad you emphasize this a little bit, that you're doing most, of, if not all of these cases under, uh, and I, I wrote down the quote that I heard you say before, marginally competent C-arm and good <laughs> karma and vibes on tap. Uh, so can you just tell us a little bit about your C-arm? Does it have a name? And uh, yeah, just ha- how do you manage doing these uh, complex procedures with pretty lean equipment? Yeah, I've got a C-arm that has tape holding parts of it together and I'm not, I'm not kidding. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it is marginally competent C-arm and, you know, we came out of a case the, the other day with the, the case I described that we were doing the screws combined with the sacroplasty and, and it wasn't just, it was an ilium plasty, osteoplasty, the ilium, <clears throat> the sacrum inside the SI joint around those three big screws. And, you know, the, the, my fellow said, well, you know, how'd you do that? Because we really couldn't see what we were doing <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't really explain to him how I was able to do it because I really couldn't see it. I mean. I just, you know, you use the force. I, I don't know. You, you, you just kind of by experience and you know, certain things to look for and you just do it by feel and combination. And really what I want to get to a point, I want to get to a point where the imaging that I have access to makes me better. I want to have the ability where the imaging that I'm using does what I want it to do rather than for the imaging to allow me to do what I see as possible. I want, instead of it allowing me like a CT visualization to do what I think is possible by seeing now in CT, I want to have the capability of doing complex things and having the imaging allow me the capability of taking that just one step further. An example of this is whenever you put big screws in the artifact, from that is fairly profound. It's and sometimes I can't tell the wall of the neural framing uh, versus um, an artifact. 
So one of the things I'd like to have the imaging capability to be able to allow me to go right up to the border of something I need, maybe even access that cortical wall on the other side without disturbing the the, uh, neurological components that's underneath it. And that's, that's really, we're, we're not quite there yet. And one of these things about, about having the visual spatial skills that radiologists have and to be able to extrapolate that over multiple modalities is incredibly helpful. And once you get to the point where you have, um, an understanding of the anatomy so that you can kind of do things without even observing them directly. And that sounds like something that's crazy, but you kind of know what to look for and you're, you're able to extrapolate your experience with cross-sectional imaging versus planar imaging and, and can do so repeatedly at a very high rate of safety or high, low rate of complications. This is something that I think whenever we get to a combination of, you mentioned CT and angio, that's, you know, fantastic, uh, advancement. I, I always thought we would be at the point now where we could have guidance to a certain point within the body on almost a real time, uh, real time scenario. An example of this would be, why can't we not have robotic guidance that helps us out and facilitates and makes the access to a certain point within the body on a combination CT fluoro unit that we've identified, here's the point where we need to get to. Mm-hmm. And it may be a circuitous route to get to there, but as long as you have the capability of identifying a specific group of voxels within the body, why can't we figure out a way to get there at, that may be even a nonlinear r- rate? And why can't we just make this faster so we can get in and, and do what we need to be doing, just automate that. So this is kind of what I'm talking about, the imaging making you better. But right now, I think the we work with the tools that we have. And one of the things after having done hundreds of courses uh, under Floro and taught things that way, there are very few, if anybody, that's better than an interventional radiologist at really guiding things. You can always spot one as opposed to some of the other specialties. And, and, uh, this is something that people don't give themselves enough credit for. And this is our formative years were spent under Floro guiding things to get to a certain place. And, and that is not lost, uh, later on in life because just, so just because everybody that you work with is pretty awesome in a visual spatial sense, doesn't mean that's any less impressive of a talent. It just means that the other people you're working with are or probably just like you at the same level of competence. Absolutely. I think it's something that is easy to take for granted uh, in radiology training, especially for, you know, my, my peers or people a little younger than me. You know, we know we want to do IR. We like imaging, but when you're on a diagnostic service, which is most of the time in the early years, you're, you're maybe kind of daydreaming about, about the other side. But something I experienced um, just a few months ago, and I'm kind of into the the latter half of my diagnostic residency is that some, something just switched imperceptibly. And as I was reading CTs, I, I found that my mind was creating a 3d topography of what I was looking at. Whereas before that for years, you're just like, okay, this, this is what, this is the picture at this level. You know, you're kind of going through slices, just like, you know, slices of a bread loaf without at some point, and maybe it's very possible that I'm slow on this and everyone else hits it in their first year, <laughs> but it took me a few years to that visual spatial sense 
really integrates it and you're no longer consciously requiring it. It's, it's subconscious and you're just noticing things. And that's, I would imagine that has a lot to do with how you're able to do such a complex approach under Fluoro. You're integrating what you're seeing on the imaging, your tactile sense, and just the tens of thousands of cases, uh, you've, you've read and seen before that, that all kind of comes together and it's, it's almost automatic. So I was li- I listened to a podcast and it was, uh, somebody about one of the scientists who went to visit a tribe that had a really unique language and the language is kind of directional based and there's lots of languages that are based on lots of different things, but this language was, uh, kind of directionally based and this was, um, a nomadic tribe and they kind of would greet each other, something you would come up to me and I would say, you would ask Carol about who's doing it. I would say, I'm doing fine. I'm heading north by northwest. And it's, it was a really directional and location based language. And so this, the scientist was there and observed it and was there with the translator and was able to, to hear and communicate with the people and was there for a fairly extended period of time. And then one day she was there and she described the event and she was talking to the, to, to somebody and, and then suddenly based on the language and based on the discussion, she saw in her mind, you know, the, a, a little panel up here <laughs> and saw herself like a map and saw herself as uh, a, a red dot or a dot in relationship to the rest of the map. Pretty excited and went back and described to one of the elders of the tribe, you know, I, I see this map and now I understand how to do this. I, I understand where I am and I understand how to greet and talk with people because I see myself on the map and the elder said, well, of course, how else would you do it? Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. So it's about developing the visual spatial skills to the point where you're able to combine the visual with the spatial. And if, unless you, people think evolution happens like this, it doesn't happen like this. Evolution happens, fits and starts, right? Sudden kind of and the evolution to have great visual spatial skills happens like regular evolution and fits and starts one day, the switch is off mm-hmm. next day, the switch is on. You have the ability to do this. And a lot of what we see is, is spatial, the ability to hit a tennis ball, shoot a basketball. And this is, this is kind of the spatial orientation, the spatial awareness to play cornhole and be good at it. That's a spatial awareness. The visual is something that also requires practice and people don't understand it. There's Nobel prize work by Hubel and Weasel, uh, in the seventies. And this is about visual spatial type of awareness and primarily the visual. So the visual cortex is in back, it's connected to the neocortex in front and the medial prefrontal cortex, which is kind of your judgment center. And that's why this made this so important is a connection between the neocortex and the visual cortex. And they raised kittens and, uh, horizontal lines and all their immediate existence at shortly after birth were raised in an environment that had all horizontal lines, no vertical. And so they let them out into the office space, into a normal environment. And what do you think happened? Well, the, the kittens ran into any, they ran into a desk leg, <laughs> a chair leg, a side of a door, anything that was vertically oriented. And how many times do you think that happened? Well, once, right? And the kitten's like, okay, don't do that. Yeah. That's, I, I can, I, I can see it now. 
And so they, they repeated the experiment and in vertical lines, same thing happened, except they couldn't see. So were those kittens, were the, were the cats blinded, literally blinded to horizontal or vertical lines? The answer is, of course not. Of course not. They were not blinded to it. They just had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that whenever we used to have plane films and we'd see something, even now, we'd see it on a monitor, we'd see a, a hardware with a broken screw there with a resin or a fellow that never really seen that before. So, so what do you see there? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. And to me, it's, it's obvious. And then, you know, I used to, in, in the drawer, I have screws and I have a couple that are broken. So I take them out and I put them on the desktop. So what do you see now? I see a broken screw. I said, look back at it. Okay. Broken screw. So the old adage, you see what you look for and you look mm-hmm. for what you know is based out of the work for of Hubel and Weasel. And it's based on the, the connection between what you know, because if you've never seen it before, you can be literally and figuratively blinded to that. And of course you're not, you're not literally blinded to it in a, in a real sense. I mean, you, your, your eyes are working, mm-hmm. your visual cortex is working, but unless you're able to put that and benchmark it as to what this is and understand kind of where this goes in, in your knowledge base, you won't be able to see it. And so that's how people develop their visual spatial skills in three dimensional. And suddenly, suddenly you can see, right. You're, you know, you, you take the red pill, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not, uh, you, you're able to finally, you look at enough of these things and you're able to get the knowledge base of how the liver is sh- shaped and the bones are shaped and the spinal canal. And then it hits you all at once. Okay. I've got it. And to developing this, to access it from the outside. You know, that's a, that's a level, that's the next level. And when you become really competent at doing it, and then you're able to do it kind of by almost by feel, then you're next level. And that's, that's what we need to do is take that skill and that capability and ratchet that up as much as mm-hmm. we can. We need to use not only technology, but we need to use that ability in conjunction with that technology. Then I think when we're at the point where the tech actually starts to make us better. We're at the point where we're doing it without adequate guidance and we're trying to do it by karma vibes and good feeling. <laughs> and, uh, and we, what we have, we what we need to do to go to the next level we don't have. I think that's what we need to do to combine, to take the, the, the tech with the ability to get everything to advance to the next level. And that's, that's kind of what we're looking for now is that there's nothing more impressive than some, somebody that's operating that has really well-developed visual spatial skills that is able to have uh, a minimally, ultra minimally invasive or percutaneous way of doing big things on the inside, little poke holes on the outside. Absolutely. Could not agree more. I think, again, preaching to the choir, given our audience, but I, I think that interventional radiologists and, and I'd include, uh, you know, interventional neuroradiologists and musculoskeletal radiologists in there. I think we're really the ones that are going to be pushing the field of interventional spine. And I see this, you know, a lot of the stuff coming out of Europe, I think is maybe a couple steps ahead of us, you know, predominantly probably due to FDA kind of stuff, but some of the work from people like Luigi Manfrey showing how to use this multimodality integration. That that's just the future for us. And, yep. um, I, I'm really excited to see what's going to be happening in the next few years. And on that note, 
we've had great discussion about uh, osteoporosis, medical, diagnostic, and interventional. There are a couple other uh, topics I wanted to talk about. And so the, the first, from what we're talking about, the bleeding edge of musculoskeletal IR, what stuff is on the horizon? You've talked about a few things, but what are, you know, two or three things that are really exciting to you right now? So one of the things that's uh, really, truly novel is disc augmentation. So, and this is for fans of vertebral augmentation, you'll, you'll find this really easy to understand. Intradiscal augmentation with hydrogels. So the gel that I, a couple of weeks ago, I was up in Calgary, Canada, and Alberta. We were doing intradiscal augmentations. I was doing it with my former fellow, Olivier Clerc, and it was great to see him work. It's absolute stud and really adept at what he does. And I was very proud. And to be able to combine a disc access with, to be able to augment a disc. And this stuff is a combination of PVA, PEG, and PVP, polyvinyl prolidone. And it goes in as a liquid and it, it cools and it goes in maybe about toothpaste consistency and cools to a gel that has about the same tactile resistance as maybe a medium hard eraser. So this is like fix it flat for a disc mm -hmm. and the ability to, and it, it's a, a polyvinyl alcohol, poly, polyvinyl proletone and that polyethylene glycol makes it to be able to go in as a liquid and harden. And this stuff, it, it attaches to itself by hydrogen bonds. So if you, and it tends to meld together. So if you have it together, you're able to break it apart, say in a testing environment and you leave it just in a repetitive stress machine and you come back the gel will actually meld back together, self-healing hydrogel. So it heals with hydrogen bonds. So as long as it's not in a, uh, well, as long as it is in an aqueous environment, it will heal back together. So this is the kind of stuff that in at least the early feasibility studies in, in uh, Columbia and the pivotal trial will be done here. The pilot trial is done in Canada. The early data on this stuff looks fantastic for treating back pain and it's not regenerative. It's not uh, ablative. It's, it's an augmentation. So it works in the annulus, it works in the nucleus, uh, and it's, it looks to be something completely novel and completely different. So that's one thing. The, another thing is we have the capability now of doing interspinous process devices. The first one out of the box was X-Top and the downside was the eight or nine centimeter incision necessary to put it in. We've modified that to VertiFlex. We've kind of have a fusion spacer and there's a minimally invasive fusion spacer called the Minuteman, uh, comes from Spinal Simplicity. The ability to do this really emphasizes the need for us to do more in terms of the ability to have a three column approach, simply because I want you to vision this scenario. 75 year old female with grade one to two spondystenosis, four, five, six, seven, eight comorbidities, not a surgical candidate, but, but has very significant stenosis to the point where legs are starting getting weak. So once, once that happens, once the legs start to get weak, you got to have about six months before that becomes a permanent event before it, you can decompress and the patient doesn't get better. That's kind of an average type of rule. So. Non-surgical candidate, legs started getting weak, uh, grade one to two spondy stenosis. How are you going to fix it? I mean, is it fixable? 
The answer is yes, it's fixable. Uh, how do we do it now? We do a spacer and we know that that spacer is not enough, is sufficient enough, even if it fuses to hold up over time. So we need some anterior column support. The reason why the person has a grade one to two spondy is because the disc is dust. So mm-hmm. Fearman grade eight, and the scale only goes to eight. I mean, it's nothing there. We need the ability to pull it back. And can we pull it back? The answer is, of course, yes. We need to do it through Camden's safe triangle. And we can do the ability to have uh, expandable implants, and we could pull that back and, and an implant that goes from back to front, starting like this makes a lot of sense to be able to reduce that spine. You can do it also with ligamentotaxis. And then the ability to, to fixate, to provide a long-term fusion there. Mm-hmm. But why would you want to do a fusion to say, treat that 75-year-old the same way you treat a 40-year-old in terms of bony fusion for spinal diseases? I mean, that doesn't seem to really make much sense. Make her 85 and that it even emphasizes that point more. Mm-hmm. So the ability to have instantaneous fusion. I mean, you could put bone cement in there. I don't th- say anything wrong with that, but that's not typically done. But I want you to imagine the ability to do two implants that are expandable up to about 16, 17 millimeters, a little bit of lordosis to be able to reduce that grade one to two back to negligible or half, grade one half to put a fusion spacer that will fuse at a rate of 96, 97% based on our, re- our recent data and have the ability to put an adhesive or cement or something that will grow into bone that will design to be stay there a long period of time. You could fix her with three incisions that at biggest, the biggest incision would be two and a half centimeters and do so as an outpatient to have durability that would be maximal on an other and, and a tremendous amount of of symptom relief in somebody that has been called a non-surgical candidate who is clocked, start, started ticking on the leg weakness. So all of these components of everything around there are, are now present. It's just a matter of assembling this together to be able to do something that's effective. These are, this is what one of the things I'm working on now is the ability to assemble these things together and do so in a standard way to give people the ability to provide a tremendous amount of symptom relief because spinal stasis and stenosis are two things that pr- produce symptoms that once you treat people get better and they get better predictably and durably. And the, I mean, it's, it ranks right up there. The stenosis relief does with the, you know, oh my God, thank you very much. It ranks up there with vertebral augmentation in terms of patient satisfaction and outcome. So, you know, that's, that's another thing. There's more, I'll kind of, Stop right yeah, there. These are too these, much. These are <laughs> these, these are things that are exciting. But this is, I mean, not only within reach. Uh, a lot of these techniques I'm referring to have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. It just it just takes the the technology that we put in for patient correction to catch up. It takes a while for that to catch up with our ability to do the certain approaches. Yeah, I agree it, that. The concept is really exciting, this um, anterior and posterior uh, fusion through percutaneous means. I think it's high time that uh, kind of these large pedicle screw constructs, especially for simple spondy, you know, I would like to see those be a thing of the past, you know, because you have patients, even if they get better from the spondy perspective, you've talked about the data on the recovery from those kind of procedures. And uh, this is not to knock on uh, spine surgeons at all because they're doing fantastic work, but 
I see this not infrequently that, you know, we see something called minimally invasive and then we see kind of the intraoperative imaging. It's like, I mean, you, you <laughs> compare that to the stuff we're doing in IR, which is mostly almost entirely percutaneous. I think, uh, you know, minimally it's all relative. And I, I would say that if, you know, that, that minimally invasive spine surgery, that's part of the parlance. I think that we need to use the term that you used a few minutes ago, which is ultra minimally invasive or yep. what I've seen, uh, Dr. Manfrey from Italy refer to as covert surgery. I think that's probably yep. the coolest way of thinking about it and, and very accurate too. And so all that stuff you're talking about is, is really exciting is can we expect to see some data on an approach like this anterior posterior fusion you're talking about, or is this kind of more in the pre, uh, just kind of early phase? Uh, we'll see some, we'll see some data within the next couple of years. So this will absolutely be described and posted and, and data collected about the outcomes of this, because we, we know the outcomes are, are great. If you were to take that an 85 year old woman and do a decompression fusion, you know, the outcomes would be really good. It's about the adjacent segment disease. Right. And that's why we don't do it quickly. And, but in a scenario like this, you know, you, you really have to, and you have to provide stabilization for spinal anesthesis. It's just about minifying that mm -hmm. it's about limiting the surgical risk and about accomplishing the same goal, just not, just not doing the same amount of invasion that hurts the patient, especially when they're, right. they have comorbidities or they're frail or they're elderly or, or some other risk factors. And, you know, the ability to, uh, to do a lot of these things that will provide tremendous amounts in pain and functional improvement and in people that are traditionally thought of as non-surgical candidates. I mean, you, you, we have to, you know, we have to keep in mind that just not so long ago, we were collecting registry data on, on joint arthroplasty because, oh, you know, that, that's just joint pain. That's fine. They, they're just, they're just going to hurt. The joint replacement is expensive and, and, uh, they, they could just, you know, take some aspirin. Right. Right. And it, we, and we had to kind of make the switch in my mind to switch that gear to the point where we were saying, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in the techniques. Now with the robotic assisted surgery, minimally invasive anterior hip approach and things like this, these are, these are the type of change that changing gears to be able to get into the point where, yes, we know what we need to accomplish. A lot of this is, is treatment has time modern tradition and, and a proof that what we're doing, correcting this pathologic entity works. Now we need to be able to minify it. Now we need to be able to do, to use different tools. We able to use a different approach to accomplish the same thing in a much less invasive way. And, you know, I think the future is exceedingly bright for, for a lot of these techniques. Absolutely. And, uh, I can't wait to see what's, what we're going to have in five years. Uh, you know, just the, you know, I mean, from two years ago, uh, or so spine Jack was, uh, just kind of coming onto the scene, at least over here in the U S. And now it's quite popular. I think we're seeing, you know, great success with that. And, uh, I'm really excited to see some of the new technologies that are being solidified. And, and more than that, I'm, I'm really excited to see our specialties increased involvement in this area. And it's not anything about, oh, you know, chest beating, we're the best or anything, but for the reasons we discussed a minute ago, our skill set is so well suited to these problems. And, and you discuss multiple times. The patient who's not a surgical candidate, they have no option. That's where we live 
That's and that's where we're raised is uh, is IRs and in residency even is doing something for a patient that nobody else can do. And you know we're we're used to doing that and and frankly kind of a a fatal and kind of hail mary sort of process. And I think what is so gratifying uh, about this area, what made me gravitate toward it, and and the reason I'm seeing a lot of my peers interested in it as well is you're moving away from that kind of fatalistic, you know, let's just do a Hail Mary kind of thing toward something that is really increasing that patient's long-term outcome. You're getting them up and about, and, you know, that's that's obviously typified in your approach to osteoporosis, and I think it applies to so much else in the musculoskeletal system. So I'm just really excited to see what's going to be coming out in the next few years. Amen. When you consider things like interspinous process device, and the kind of ubiquitous use, basically vertebral nerve ablation, regenerative treatment for the disc, hydrogel, all of this stuff is new within the past five years. And so we uh, can't imagine the next five years, how exciting that'll be. Absolutely. Ed, there's one more topic I want to touch on before we finish. And this is about your newest book. And uh, this yeah. is not about a, a new technology, but it's a, a fantastic one and one that I think uh, IRs are pretty uh, not not well aware of. And so last time you were on the show, you had pre, uh, recently published the excellent textbook for T-Brawl Augmentation, which we discussed uh, a few times in the show. That's just an invaluable resource for anyone treating VCFs, and I'd recommend it. And so now you've recently put out the new textbook, Intrathecal Pump Drug Delivery, uh, published by Springer. And so I've noticed you're you're one of just a handful. Uh, I can't actually think of another example, but one of very few, I'm sure, interventional radiologists out there putting in intrathecal pumps. I know it's a topic you're very passionate about. And eventually, I think we, we need to have uh, just an entire episode dedicated to this topic. But for now, can you tell us a little bit about the new book and, and why more IR should be learning the art of intrathecal therapy? So the new book is right here, right there, intrathecal pump drug delivery. And, um, you know, I wrote it because there isn't another one. So there's no, there's no guide to this. You know, this has been around since the 80s, the intrathecal targeted drug delivery, and it's, it's very powerful. And I, I've never really understood to kind of hone this in on interventional radiologists uh, at the right, at the outset. I've never understood why this isn't in everybody's wheelhouse. I've never understood it at all. Let's, let's take something as easy as, as cancer. So cancer and cancer-related pain. So we, we do the we do the diagnosis. We see there's a mass. We do the biopsy. We, the pathology comes back malignant and we do lots of different interventional oncologic treatments. We do embolization taste. We do cryo, lots of different types of therapies. We follow them along with the distal imaging. We, we put ports in people and we do all kinds of maintenance over time. These are patients that commonly are affected with pain, but the king of everything for pain relief, the intrathecal pump, we don't do. And it's just nothing more than a big port. This is something that goes in. It's a 20 or 40 cc pump, and it's accessed in the center and has a catheter access point on the side. You put it and you access the, the pump to do things with the catheter and refill it through a port, just like a big port. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, for patients that have metastatic disease, especially in patients with pancreatic cancer. These two are more notable for having an increased amount of pain. This is about the only thing you can do 
to give them adequate relief of pain. And, you know, based on the intrathecal system, the blood brain barrier and everything else, <clears throat> the medications you put in the CSF puts the pain medication right next to the pain receptor and is done so at a dose between one and 101 to 300 less of a dose intrathecally than you take orally or systemically through a patch uh, or any other route that's available. So it does far better for pain than anything we have. It's on the continuum of cancer care treatment and it involves um, a huge number of people that, that have continued ongoing moderate to severe or severe pain, but we just, we just don't do it. And I think it's due, a lot of it is due to lack of familiarity. So one of the things that I, I noticed not until later was, uh, there's two companies that make the pumps, Flonix and Medtronic. And, you know, I was the first one interventional radiologist to do uh, a pump with both companies, I think. Um, and they, they just don't look at IR as a typical customer mm -hmm. and consequently they never really pay attention to you. And that's to me a little bit incidental, don't really care too much about that, but they do. You know, the company provides good support in terms of representative coverage and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been very successful and it comes down to the point where I think there's not a, a how-to manual on this. So people talk about, uh, medications you can use, what kind can you use, what concentrations, how do you use it? How do you do a trial? How do you do the implantation? What tools do you need? And so I got to the point where I wanted all this to be written down so I could pass a book on to somebody to say here, this is why you should do it. I mean, it's pretty easy when you see the sequence. I mean, you, you cover everything in relation to cancer pain, except for the, the most obvious best thing that you can do for cancer pain. Mm -hmm. And uh, all it is a matter, you put in ports, you put in every, this is like a big port. Mm -hmm. So why in the world wouldn't you do that? Mm -hmm. And for, you know, for severe spasticity, for multi-site pain, for chronic and severe pain, this is basically the only thing that you can do, especially in patients that are non-surgical candidates. So for me, this is an absolutely essential part of my practice. I mean, I, I can't imagine not having access to it because we use it and, and people, this is the back of the rack solution is better than anything we have for pain. And in those five categories that, that I mentioned that I listed off is basically the only thing that we have. So this is a kind of a how-to guide. It's something that I think IR is very, very well uh, adapted to doing. I think that it, this is something that they just have not been exposed to because it typically doesn't fall, fall under the typical customer base of the companies that make and sell uh, the, the pubs and that try to do training courses and really engage the societies from that level to the point where they encourage you to, to do pumps. And, and if you've never been exposed to anything like this, how would you know? Right. And I kind of was exposed to it and started doing it just based on need. I mean, I, I, you know, for, for cancer pain, for severe pain, for multi-site pain, I mean, there's nothing else. I was doing the full spectrum of interventional pain management and I have people that I couldn't treat and started looking around. And I remember this a little bit from residency and you know, I, I think I probably need to start doing pumps and, and we did. So, and it's been, it's been very gratifying. I mean, I was, I was considering it and the way that this started was we had two, uh, of the, our individuals that were managing 
67 intrathecal backup from pumps for spasticity, moving to be a hospitalist and retiring at a private practice, moving over to be a hospitalist. And so basically they were looking at for a home for these 67 primarily cerebral palsy kids with severe spasticity managed by backlift and pumps. And so, you know, everybody said no, no, no. And, and, uh, I was the only sucker that said yes. And, uh, and I, I really wondered whether that would have, it was a good decision or not at the time, but looking back at it, it's one of the best decisions, uh, we've ever made is that this patient population is tremendously grateful or they're, they're excellent to work with. They're a lot of fun. And then we, you know, I, I had other patients I knew were not being well treated in terms of pain, cancer and severe pain and, and very quickly adopted them to pain pumps. Now I've got about, my guess is maybe 500 pump patients. I've got, uh, they're kind of ongoing right now, about 25% of those, 20, 25% are back up in the rest pain. So fast forward a few years and, and it's most, mostly pain. Yeah, that's just fantastic. I think you really outlined some of the reasons why interventional radiologists are really well equipped to uh, learn yep. and implement this therapy. Even, you know, I know there are a lot of interventional radiologists and community practices who are doing high-level oncologic care, kind of, you know, yep. everything from the embolizations, ablations to some pain control. This is just seems to be such an obvious thing within the wheelhouse to, to add to those patients. And so, you know, if, if we have audience members out there who are interested in getting into this, aside from getting the book, which is great, how, how can they kind of pursue getting that training? Yeah, just, uh, you, you know, we're, we're all good communicators. I mean, anybody to reach out to me, I'd be happy to kind of turn them on to the various training courses where you can go to get additional tips, tricks, and experience with this. Um, be more than happy to do that. And once you kind of get plugged into the space, you see uh, things on social media, you know, here's a course, um, we're, here's a topic, a webinar, we're talking about this, about spasticity or, uh, you know, trialing doses or things like that. But yeah, I really, the, the, the purpose of the book was to try to get uh, a how-to guide. So if people have questions about it, to take a look for additional experience with this, there's lots of different things that can be done. And I would ask them just to, it, the, the community that does this is relatively small. And I think it's um, one of the most undertreated, underserved areas that we have. But to be able to reach out to people in the community for additional uh, training and experience, uh, be absolutely happy to steer them in the right direction, Jacob. Fantastic. And uh, speaking of social media, uh, you know, where can our listeners follow you and keep up to date with uh, your latest and greatest pursuits? Primarily Twitter and LinkedIn. The Twitter handle is at Doug Beal, all one word. Last name is B-E-A-L-L. And then uh, just look up the name on, on LinkedIn and uh, the only one, my picture's on there. Uh, and I try to post good, uh, informative, educational, sometimes provocative posts. Uh, as you'll see, I tend to, there's not really much I don't shy away from, mm -hmm. tend to stretch the, the boundaries. And... You know, a few, about four years ago, I started doing this mainly at the request of some of my colleagues that said, if I stepped off a curb and got hit by a bus, a lot of the stuff would go by the wayside. Nobody would ever know it happens. And I have to say, I, I really was skeptical, highly skeptical. I thought I'd throw some of the stuff out there that I typically post, uh, some of which are familiar, some of which don't even have names um, to the procedure. 
thought I'd get a lot of criticism, feedback, blowback from it. I, uh, you know, people would be a little bit, um, put off, but you know, I have to say it's been exactly the opposite, exactly the opposite. I think I've got a lot of feedback. Hey, you know, I've thought about doing this or I've, I've done that a couple of times. What do you think? What's your experience? And it's been, it's been a combination of broadening the uh, horizons of, for me to be able to, to understand that, that there's a whole community out there doing new cool things that, and that I'm not the only one that's a little bit reticent to put a procedure that doesn't really have a name out there on social media, but that's done very commonly in the, the patient population that doesn't have any other option. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's a lot of cancer patients, a lot of severe pain patients, non-surgical candidates or along that category, patients that don't really have an option are looking for novel, innovative solutions. And I can think of a group no better to handle that than, than the interventional radiologist out there. You know, it's, it's the old shirt that you see at SIR, uh, interventional radiology inventing procedures for other specialties to steal since 1968, <laughs> I mean, very, very yeah. good innovators. And this is something, an area that I, for the social media aspect, I've been very pleased uh, about the response I've gotten from it. Absolutely. I definitely recommend all our listeners follow. You're going to see some uh, really cool stuff, just really exciting. And so Dr. Beal, that's all I had to talk about today. I want to thank you for joining me and for the back table crew for making this discussion possible. I learned so much. I'm sure our listeners will as well. Any final words before we wrap up? Yeah, just a shout out to the guys at Backtable. Thank you very much. And Jacob, thank you very much for being such a great host. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Absolutely happy to do it and look forward to some future discussions, uh, maybe on some of the topics we briefly touched about a little later on. We want to thank all our listeners for tuning in for this multi-part special with Dr. Beal. Stay tuned for more episodes of Backtable coming soon, including more interventional spine and pain-focused episodes. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore BacktableMSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu and Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Roy Kennebrew. Thanks again, and see you next time.